Welcome to episode of Cine Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cine Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories in them. And today, it, we're in a weird situation. Thomas and I are actually recording in the same room together. And it's really odd to look at you as we're starting this, <laughs> Thomas. Um, it's weird. The first episode I did with David, David and I usually record in the room, uh, in, in our apartment. And this time we did over Zoom. And now I'm recording with you in the room instead of over Zoom. So It's been... Uh Four or five years, oh, maybe. God, it's been so. We only had it one time. No, we recorded in Tuscaloosa one time. Oh, we did. Yeah, we yeah, did. After that we saw was, Pirates of the Caribbean. That was one of the last ones we ever did before our big like two year break, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, we did in Tuscaloosa when we were doing the premiere of our our thesis film from USC. Um, yeah. So if I if I look at you weird or just look off in the distance, I don't. Yeah, it could happen. So the audio might be different because of this because we're we're new to this. After so many years of recording a podcast, we were we were ahead of the curve before COVID because we did everything through Zoom, and now here we are. Um, but yeah, so this month you weren't here last week, um, but this month we're talking about concert films, and so I'll ask you, as I kind of asked David, is that what do you think of when you think of concert films? And I said the last waltz, and then you said, well, somebody else might be doing the last <laughs> waltz, and I said, oh no, oh no. Um, and now we're doing the last waltz. Um, but yeah, like, what do you think makes up like a a concert film because we talked about a few things about how it can be kind of a time capsule of who it's of a time or of the the band or musician they're covering um and kind of how it's and the best ones kind of tell a story of some kind essentially yeah yeah, yeah. I, I think you and i have talked before about uh how important uh vh1 classic was yeah. to us growing up and and um when when that when vh1 classic rolled around i was i was super into classic rock at the time and they would usually do like they would either do what was it called like movies we love or something that, yeah. which was usually movies like rock. yeah movies the rock which was usually like a john hughes movie <laughs> or that uh oh that mark Wahlberg jennifer aniston movie that I oh can't rockstar stand. yeah i hate that movie yeah, it, was, it was like rockstar it was the the temptations movie um jackson five american dream those were like the big ones on there but but usually saturday nights were a concert film and so i would i would tune you know turn them on and just kind of watch so you know I've, i i don't know that i've ever seen the song remains the same all the way through at once but i've definitely seen it like mm -hmm. five times <laughs> you know in, in pieces and so concert footage of, of of all kinds of performers um and they weren't always even like concert films in the way that i think we're probably yeah. approaching sometimes they were just music documentaries yeah, yeah like filmed concerts you know yeah. like uh, i don't i don't know that there's like i've i've seen several co filmed concerts for queen but i don't know yeah. that anybody ever sat down and made like a queen concert yeah. film gotcha. you know um, yeah uh so so yeah I, so i've seen i've seen a lot of those from from specifically kind of the classic rock era which i think is is probably the heyday of the of the concert film yeah. um but but yeah i think when i when i think like concert film as opposed to like a filmed concert there's usually some kind of interviews i mean with song remains the same they have this kind of weird like yeah. storyline that they're weaving in uh with it and and so um yeah there's there's usually some sort of kind of filmmaking outside of just kind of setting up the cameras and shooting yes a concert yeah i mean we talk about stop making sense it's, it's interesting because demi does a lot of like he shoots it and doesn't give much direction to the band but david byrne with talking heads is like he's directing kind of almost a stage musical in a way where like in his view it's like this is the fictionalized version of how the talking heads get together but it's all done through the songs they are singing and, and the placement of the songs. so you have that 
Um, or then you have, which is a lot of them is the, is the document or the, the documentary style where you're having the interviews, which we do with last waltz today. And that kind of always like it opens up. It's, it's like, it's the mix of like, and we're seeing a lot of late of like pop stars doing their like music documentary where it's not even, it's a concert film. But it's like, it's now we're, we're looking at the idea of fame essentially with, with these type of movies. If it's like Lady Gaga's or Selena Gomez's recent one. Um, but I, I think with last waltz, I think that it has those elements to it in a way. It's a mix of like a music documentary and a concert film, but it's making a statement with this one specifically. It's making a statement kind of on this era. It feels like, um, so what, yeah, so you picked last waltz. There were some questions if we're, if you're, if it'd be you or David that does it. Um, but you won out cause you have seniority, I believe. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so yeah. So why, why did you pick the last waltz? Uh, I mean, I think for better or for worse, I think it's considered the quintessential concert film, which, yeah. which leads some people to just kind of automatically write it off. I, when I was looking up reviews of it, uh, I found like an article that was like the 10 worst concert films of all time. And, and these two guys were like, we're punk rock. And like the last waltz is all about like building up this band and like treating them like they're gods. And like, we don't believe in that, which I, I think is a misreading of this, of this film, but I think maybe one person involved in the making of the film thought that they would come yep. out looking yep. that way, but yep. <laughs> we'll talk more about that. But yeah, that's for me. I love the last waltz because it is, it is like a mess and, and, and it's kind of what we didn't have until Peter Jackson came along for the Beatles mm-hmm. is this just kind of like, because everyone knew that it happened for the Beatles, but we didn't really have it like the, you know, the, the original let it be yeah. kind of documentary, like didn't really capture it. Yeah. Um, but we knew they were just kind of falling apart as they were putting together that last concert. And um, that, that's that's kind of what we end up with here. And there's so much like backstory. It's like it's like it's like the Avengers of the rock. It's like <laughs> they, they're bringing all these people in and, and different members of the band have different allegiances to different guest yeah. performers. And it's so messy. And so, you know, it's it, I think it's one of those things I, I obviously, uh, you, you know, well, to, to intro it in 1976, it was the band uh mm. the the band that was yeah. that was their name um and they had decided they were going to stop touring uh and so they were going to do one last big live show and then they were just going to become a studio band mm-hmm. and martin scorsese directed the film so yeah i think on kind of a casual intro martin scorsese shot it there's yeah. these amazing guest stars it is a entertaining watch if you're interested in this period but when you dive so much deeper into like what was going on inside the band and with everyone who was there, it becomes this like crazy interesting uh, kind of timestamp of that era, specifically kind of the death of the like seventies music scene uh, moving into the eighties. And, and it's also just such an interesting period, uh, such an interesting filmmaking story as far as like, this is uh, probably the the like kind of most respected thing from scorsese's coke era um (laughs) and uh and just the way they kind of went about it is is really crazy so you know we'll cover we'll cover all of that today yeah and so and so i'll I'll go kind of my history with last waltz Mm -hmm. it's very it's very brief um i didn't watch this until covid actually this was one of our um Edgar Wright movie group watches that we did over Zoom is what it was. And it's interesting kind of coming back to it because I feel like 
it, I had a misread on it that time because it, it when we all came out, we're like, oh, this feels kind of joyous or whatever. It's that. But in watching it this time, I don't think it's that joyous. I think it's. And you, you probably know a little bit more of the context yes. behind it this time. Right? Yes. Yeah. And I think so. And also to kind of give my backstory in the band, I don't really know much about the band. There's the big songs like Up on Cripple Creek or uh, They Drove Old Dixie Down, The Weight. Those are kind of the big ones. Um, so I had a friend where. So I also too when coming into this documentary too, where this friend of mine who she was a big fan of the band, and she hates Robbie Robertson. Yes, like yeah. hates him. So 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 yeah. Modern fans of the band are either divided between yes. team team Robbie or team Levon. Yes, and, um, and she she was just like he ruined the group and this or that. So when coming in to watch this movie, I'm like, oh yeah, you can tell that Robbie is like he's the the guy behind this mm-hmm. like perception of the band. But what I think is so fascinating, this is maybe jumping ahead, but like Scorsese does some interesting things where he, he favors Robbie a lot in the movie, but he does mean the beginning that I'm just, it's such a interesting choice where when he's interviewing Robbie first, but he shows that Robbie messes up. And then Robbie does it again. And then Robbie's like, no, let me say it this way. Yeah. And and then now I'm like, this feels almost like an unreliable narrator yeah. that, that Scorsese has just introduced in the opening moments of this movie. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. That's just a very interesting choice for a movie of this nature to be like, hey, he might be telling you this, but it's take it with a grain of salt because it's this is all very prepped. And when you look at when you listen to the, all the other guys talk, it does not feel that way. No. No, it does not feel that way. Yeah. Um, so that's why coming back this time and kind of having more of a knowledge of seeing it as this like or kind of this final chapter of the like late '60s hippie peace generation in the late seven or late '70s. This feels like the last time you will see all of these people, guest stars and the band, at this height at the same time ever again. Right is what it feels like. Yeah. Um, so it feels more at, like at a, like the peak of their talent. At the peak of their talent. It's yeah. like it's it's it can read to some as a joyous celebration, but then also can read like a funeral is what mm-hmm. it comes off as. Yeah, when absolutely. Watching it this time. So yeah, that's my opening thoughts on All that. Right. So so how does this come to be, Thomas? All right. <laughs> well, we'll, t- we'll talk about the band uh-huh. for a little bit because there's a lot of history and there's a lot of drama there. It's a, it's a, okay. it's a Greek tragedy playing out and um, you really have to understand all the players. Mm-hmm. Uh, so t- to kind of intro the band, you might, you might not even be aware of the band because despite being like a very huge group, mm-hmm. uh, for some reason, I, I feel like they, they just didn't go down in history yeah. the way a lot of the other rock acts of the seventies did. And, and that's, I mean, that was also kind of happening while they were big, which is I think they were kind of one of the first groups to earn that moniker that's like your band's favorite, your favorite band's favorite band or whatever, because they were very musically advanced Mm -hmm. and they were doing a lot of interesting stuff. And and I think a lot of people who were in music at the time loved, loved them. I know like Roger Waters, like called them like one of the two greatest bands of all time or something Mm -hmm. like that. Like. So, um, the band as we know it first formed as the Hawks. They were the backing band for uh, rockabilly singer Ronnie Hawkins, who appears in in the Last Waltz. Uh, Hawkins was originally from Arkansas, and he took his musical act on the road with a backup band, including 
uh, freshly graduated from high school, uh, Levon Helm as his drummer in 1958. So uh, Helm had been playing part-time with Hawkins while he was in high school, but when he graduated, he joined up full-time. They go on tour in 1958. They're kind of touring all of North America. And for some reason they get to Toronto and everybody in Toronto loves <laughs> Ronnie Hawkins. And so he's just like, cool. I'll just move. Stay here. I'll just stay here. <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah. So that's what he does. The band just kind of stays in Toronto and they become this like local staple. And Hawkins was known to scout local shows and kind of see his competition. And then he would poach the best musician from that band to come be in his band oh man and that was his way of making like the greatest backing band that he could but also like keeping all of his competition down yeah so, <laughs> i um, mean it's smart business play yeah, i gotta be absolutely. real <laughs> very shrewd yeah uh, redneck musician uh so this is how he came to round up uh rick danko who played bass and vocals uh richard manuel who played almost every instrument but mostly keys and also vocals Robbie Robertson, lead guitar and maybe vocals. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> uh, and then Garth Hudson, who played the organ and then also pro like every instrument known to man. Uh, they were all stolen from young local acts around the age of 18, except for Hudson, who was a formally trained musician working as a music teacher in town. Uh, they, they, they tell this story in the documentary, but I think it's such a great story. They, when they tried to get him to join the band, he was like, I'm not going to join the band as like a, I can't become like a rock musician but if you guys want me to be here like mm. like like live in music teacher I'll do oh, yeah. that ten dollars so, a week or so whatever each, it was. each member of the band had to pay him ten dollars a week for music lessons and it was and it was really just that uh <laughs> he, he had like studied music formally yeah. and so the idea of just kind of joining a rock band felt a little bit beneath him so mm -hmm. he for his own dignity yeah. he had to be like their I'm music a teacher, teacher. <laughs> I'm a teacher so the group is now they're now officially known as the Hawks. So it's Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks. And they stayed with Hawkins from 1958 to 1963. Wow. And uh, mostly playing out of Toronto. They go on kind of tours uh, in Canada and, and, and some of North America. Uh, but they eventually left over several grievances with Hawkins, including him refusing to add new songs to his act. He was known to just kind of like, this is my act and that's it. We're not writing new songs. We're not doing anything new. And then he would also find find band members uh, for infractions such as inviting girlfriends to shows. He said, only single ladies in the audience. You can't even bring your own girlfriends. And um, he was very anti-weed. So he said Interesting. he find them if he caught them smoking weed. Yeah. He's a conservative Arkansas boy is what it <laughs> sounds like. So uh, 1963, they break up with Hawkins. Uh, they continue to play around Toronto under various new names, including the Levon Helm Sextet. They added a, <laughs> they added a, uh, a saxophone player for a little while, oh. and we're a sextet. Where's he at right now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Canadian Squires was their name for a okay. while, uh, and then they eventually landed just on being Levon Helm and the Hawks. And and we're that for most of 1963 through 1965. So already, yeah, Levon Helm is the leader. Is of the this leader band. of this band? Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, he's he's other than than Garth Hudson. He's the oldest. He's got the most music experience out mm -hmm. of all of them he, uh, because he toured with Hawkins kind of before they joined. So yeah, it's it's now Levon Helm's band. So then 1965, uh, fresh off a disastrous appearance at the Newfork 
Newport Folk Festival mm-hmm. in which uh, Bob Dylan revealed his new elect- electric music. Yeah. I love, I always think of that scene from I'm Not, I'm not there, there when, when they, it's like, it's like guns yeah, going on. Tommy guns and they just like level the crowd. <laughs> um, so yeah, Bob Dylan has unveiled this electric backing band, uh, which he kind of apparently threw together kind of last minute with some mm-hmm. session artists. So he's in need, but he's decided this is what he wants to stick with. He's been a solo acoustic act up until now, but now he, he wants to be a, a rock. He wants to lead a rock band. So yeah. He's kind of searching around for like who's going to back him up. And somebody says, you need to go to Toronto and mm-hmm. see the Hawks. Uh, so he goes up and sees them. He recruits. Uh, he actually had while he was in Toronto, he had Levon Helm and Robbie Robertson come play a couple shows with him. And he was like, hey, you guys should come join up with me. And they were like, not without the rest of the Hawks. So he brings them on and they go on his first ever electric rock band tour of the u.s in 1965 uh it's during this tour that they become the band because it was so newsworthy that bob dylan was touring with a band that the yeah. headline was just bob dylan and the band yeah bob dylan and the band he'd never toured with the band before <laughs> uh this was a period famously marked by amphetamine abuse by dylan uh if you've seen i'm not there or if you've seen uh, uh walk hard <laughs> and and helm got kind of disenchanted with it and Mm -hmm. left the band left the tour uh for two years and worked Mm -hmm. on an oil rig uh that checks out yeah like he he just seems like that guy honestly from what i can stop playing music for a little while i'll go get some honest work yeah so the rest of the band toured with dylan from 1965 they did a u.s tour 1966 they did a world tour and this is kind of when the power shift happens when robbie robertson decides Levon's gone. I'm going to step up. I'm the guy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in 1966, Dylan is injured in a motorcycle accident. He stops touring and he sets up shop in Woodstock for several years uh, to record new music uh, with the band. Uh, This eventually comes out as the basement tapes, which I think most people don't really care for the basement tapes. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, Um, it's it's, it's like, I I feel like I'm like, I'm one of like Dylan's like big greatest hits like selection. I feel like one song mm-hmm. was from the basement tapes or something like that uh so while they're up in woodstock helm joins back up with the group because this is much more his speed like yeah. hanging out in the country in new country, york country making music when we can yeah yeah they, they talk about it in last waltz about how they they liked being away from everyone because yeah, like, once everyone showed up they started having fun but yeah. they didn't make music yeah exactly they had this big house they called it was a big pink house they called it big pink and they were like, yeah, we weren't making music. We were like working on the house and doing chopping wood and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's it's while they're kind of doing the basement tapes in Woods, Woodstock that they record their debut album as just the band, which is 1968's music from Big Pink. Oh, okay. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> uh, over the next few years with some big pushes in the media, including use of the song The Weight in Easy Rider in 1969, um, they earned a big fan in in uh grail marcus who wrote for rolling stone and cream and so he pushed them like really hard uh they became very widely successful in the late 60s early 70s they released eight albums and mounted multiple tours through the 1970s um during this time they were the first rock group after the beatles to be featured on the cover of time magazine they were uh they're among one of the most discussed musical groups in Rolling Stone magazine's history. 
so it was it was like they they were like a music critics yeah band band yeah um this is the people you should know about yeah 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 and it was you know it's it's kind of southern influenced rock i think i think yeah you're at that rise of southern rock and kind of that late early 70s era with the almond brothers who were actually southern um leave on helm was very southern (laughs) was very southern but yeah it's you have because that rise kind of came out i think it was late six because i know Dwayne Allman started off as a side man similar to kind of like the band did like they were side musicians in other recording companies and it just kind of like broke out yeah all at one time yeah, yeah absolutely I think I think it was these guys you know they that were raised kind of playing southern rock mm-hmm. but it wasn't really a viable musical genre but they were yeah. still good at their they were still good at their instruments and so they became session artists and then it kind of turned into like oh now we can play the music that we know yeah yeah um so anyway during the 70s as all this kind of rise to fame is going on as with any band just about any band seeds of discord were being sown uh most notably that robbie robertson had fashioned himself as the leader of the group in helms two-year absence leading to some tensions after helms return uh all of that leads us up to this disclaimer you brought up a a unreliable narrative narrator before um most of the account of the conception and production of this concert and film are the come from Robbie Robertson, mm-hmm. uh, who conceived of, who did admittedly conceive of the whole film. I think everyone else in the band will will say that. Will admit yeah. this was all Robbie's idea. Will happily admit. I, I wonder why. <laughs> um, they were very openly not fans of anything that went down here, and um, <laughs> haven't really spoken much about it except for Levon. And um, we'll pepper in. I'll, I'll use Levon's memories to kind of pepper in some contrast to what we're getting from Robbie. But yeah, uh, for me to not have to open like every sentence with like, according to, to Robbie, Robbie uh, that's, that's a lot of this is coming from yeah, him. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's where we'll go. Um, so yeah, that brings us to the production of the last waltz. Mm-hmm. So 1976, Robbie Robertson says he, he takes a look around and he's just really disillusioned with the idea of of touring and and with being like a a rock star Mm -hmm. he says you know Jimi hendrix janice joplin jim morrison even more recently graham parsons nick drake tim buckley like all these musicians are are dying or killing themselves like something is obviously wrong yeah uh and so according to robertson that'll be like the last time i'll say that (laughs) he did he did air quotes guys yeah yeah. (laughs) uh the desire to get off the road was born out of a concern for the safety of the band. Uh, although they were only six or seven years into a successful career as the band, they'd been performing together for nearly 20 years. Yeah. Uh, it's a while. It's a while. That's a while. Uh, he goes as far as to say in his memoir that the concern was mostly for Garth Hudson, uh, who he, Robbie kind of depicts as this like noble artist who's still like stuck in this world of like yeah. rock stars. <laughs> This is a direct quote from his memoir. Um, I worried that Garth and I had three junkies in our group, plus our so-called manager. Finally, I declared no more. So mm-hmm. Robbie's just going to step up and like, I'm going to take, he's going to save, save everybody. He's going to save everyone. Gonna yeah. save everybody by, by making a stop. Yeah. So he took his concerns to the band and proposed that they play one last big show and then quit touring and kind of retreat to the studio where they could live a quieter life and just focus on the music. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
he says in his memoir that the rest of the group agreed with him uh later on most of them would say that they were just kind of steamrolled into yeah. all of this uh but regardless of what anyone else said deciding that he knew what was best robertson set about planning a big final live show for the band the idea had come to him in september and he decided thanksgiving seemed like the right time for their big final show um kind of weird from a canadian <laughs> thanksgiving is not a canadian holiday but they have it's in october they have thanksgiving in october yeah yeah but yeah, he keep, he talks a lot in in his memoir specifically about the Beatles. Mm-hmm. It's like the Beatles went yeah. off the road and their music got so much better. Yeah, and and I could see Ryan Robertson thinking we're like the Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> so they immediately knew they wanted Ronnie Hawkins and Bob Dylan to perform in the yeah. show because they were both integral in kind of getting them started. Mm-hmm. And Robertson wanted to host the show at Winterland in San Francisco, which was the very first venue they had played live as the band. Okay. So, you know, it's this whole kind of this is where we came from. Yeah. Uh, this great exit. Um, but looking back, it kind of through their whole career. Yeah. And no, it's very much a retrospective on them. And it's it's smart and a storytelling uh, aspect, which I don't know because I know and you might talk about this more. It's like the the way the concert is shown is not the exact order. Yes. It occurred yeah, yeah, yeah. In. Mm-hmm. But it is smart to like kind of your first one of your first songs, your they're opening with Ronnie Hawkins and they're kind of closing with Dylan where it's kind of this nice bookend of like, here's who got us started, but here's who kind of made us big. And that's, we're kind of honoring them as well on top of us. Um, so then he, he also wanted to fill out the rest of the show with special guests. And he said he wanted them to represent the genres that the band played and genres that they respected and and so they had uh eric clapton to represent the the british blues uh dr john for the new orleans sound uh joni mitchell who was canadian folk uh muddy waters who was kind of chicago blues paul butterfield who uh played harmonica which was very important to them they they talk about (laughs) specifically they have an interview where they're just talking about harmonica for a little while um uh, and then, uh, very important to Robbie Robertson, uh, Neil Diamond as a Tin Pan Alley kind of pop uh, songwriter. Such a weird pull. Uh Van Morrison as as Irish folk R and B, kind of his blend, and then Neil Young as folk rock and also Canadian. Yeah, I was waiting for your Neil Young <laughs> mention. Uh. And then Robertson, knew, he knew he wanted the whole thing filmed. And he also knew that he had a direct line to Martin Scorsese. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Taplin, who was the band's tour manager through the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, in, in 1973, he moved to L.A. And he looked Scorsese up because he knew Scorsese from Woodstock. Yeah. He The band was at Woodstock, even though they didn't make it in the documentary. Yeah. Taplin and set them up there he met Scorsese who was working on yeah he was an editor or he shot he shot yeah. he shot okay yeah because because yeah he shot and then I know not long after I know he edited Elvis on tour or he was an editor on Elvis on tour so he had concert film experience yeah so so 73 Taplin gets out to LA he hooks up with Scorsese Scorsese had just finished shooting his second feature uh for Roger Corman and he showed uh Taplin his next script which was titled season of the witch uh Taplin proposed that he pr- produce it for Scorsese saying I was naive enough to think that if I had produced 150 concerts I could produce a movie <laughs> uh but he pulled it off okay. and season of the witch eventually became mean streets okay. the movie that would really kind of break Scorsese out mm-hmm. 
So back to 76, Robertson calls up John Taplin and says, I want to meet Martin Scorsese. Mm-hmm. so Scorsese and Robertson meet over dinner Scorsese brought his wife and Liza Minnelli because they were in the middle of shooting New York New York okay. uh, Robertson pitches this movie and Scorsese says hold up hold up I'm gonna stop you uh, I'm shooting a Warner Brothers film <laughs> right now uh, you can, you want to do this in a month uh, yeah. you know this is like early October 76 yeah um, I can't just stop shooting a yeah. the Warner Brothers is not gonna let me stop shooting Shoot a movie, movie. Yeah, yeah. to to come shoot your concert. Uh they just don't they don't let you just take time off to do passion projects. So there he kind of like shuts them down immediately, but then he's like, Well, tell me more about the show, because they're at dinner, they're sitting down to dinner. And Robertson starts listing out all these other people who he's mm-hmm. been reaching out to and who are signing on. And he says, Finally, he listed everybody who's gonna be there, and Scorsese says he just says, The hell with it. Those are my favorite artists and you're the band. Oh my God, I have to do it. And that's it. They Mm -hmm. can fire me. I have to do it. Keep in mind, like I said, this is also the period of Scorsese's career, famously known as the Coke era, Mm -hmm. uh, which Robertson confirms by noting that Marty pulled out a vial of it at dinner that night. (laughs) I was about to say when he said, hold up. (laughs) Yeah. Go again. He said he has this story. Robertson has a story in his memoir where like, uh scorsese was like asking if anyone had afrin because he was like really congested and robertson was like well actually i've heard like coke can open up your sinuses and he just like reached into his coat and was like i have coke i need afrin." <laughs> um but that might have also contributed to him thinking that he could pull off two movies at, at once? the same time yeah, yeah. uh someone who was thinking never sleep yeah, someone who's thinking a little bit more clearly was scorsese's dp on new york new york laszlo kovacs who scorsese recruited to shoot the film uh, it was Kovacs' idea to shoot the movie on 35 millimeter, something that had never been done for a concert before. Nobody had ever shot a concert. They on probably had 16 millimeter, millimeter for 16, everything, yeah, because yeah. 16 could run longer, and the cameras were smaller and more portable. Yeah. Uh, none of them are really sure if 35 millimeter cameras could shoot long enough to cover the concert because they also tended to overheat. But Kovacs said it would be, you know, you have to shoot this on 35 millimeter. Uh, he also said that he did not have the time to DP the film, however, and yeah. uh, just wanted to be a camera operator. So then Scorsese reaches out mm-hmm. to Michael Chapman, who was his DP from Taxi Driver, yep. and says, you can come DP, but uh, Lazo Kovacs says you have to shoot on 35 millimeter, and that's a that's a must. That's, that's a non-negotiable. Yeah. So the band, kind of Robertson, is kind of getting the musical aspect of the show together while Scorsese is shooting a movie <laughs> and also getting and, this and production also, together. And also to put in perspective, like a movie that is kind of a big deal for him in, in terms of like working with a studio post-Taxi Driver. Like this is kind of his his passion project, weirdly enough. It's like this is his version of a passion project with New York, New York. And... It's it's a musical. It's De Niro, who's becoming one of the biggest stars. Liza Minnelli, who's as post cabaret, so she's one of the biggest stars in the in the country. So it's a big deal. And he's like, I'm gonna go shoot this concert film. Yeah, you guys have trusted me with a this immense film. Uh, I'm 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 a little indie guy off the streets in New York. Yeah, and I'm gonna double dip while we're doing yeah. this. I can do it. Yeah. <laughs> So the band set up rehearsals at their ranch, uh, Shangri-La, which we see a little bit of footage of in the in the film. Uh, as the musical guests came out, to, they would kind of pick. Everyone was almost everyone was doing two songs. Just would come out and do two songs. Uh, I think Dylan was the only one who did a couple more. Uh, but they'd come out. They'd kind of give the band their songs. They'd rehearse them a little bit, and then 
Robertson would give Scorsese the songs Mm -hmm. and Scorsese would write out the lyrics into a script. So he had a 200 page script that was every lyric of every song all the way through the show. Uh, And then he was using that to map out. He had a full like shot map as they went into this. uh, Oh man, that I I just love. Yeah. I'll go. I'll come back to that later. (laughs) Uh, One person who was not very excited at Martin Scorsese poking around rehearsals was Bob Dylan. (laughs) uh who was in post-production on his own concert film of his rolling thunder review Mm -hmm. tour which i love all this like scorsese dylan yeah because then scorsese ends up doing so many movies like two movies with him i think including the rolling Rolling thunder Thunder review yeah um but he was really concerned uh that footage of him in the last waltz would devalue the rolling thunder review you know it's like if people see me in the last waltz are they going to want to see rolling thunder review as, Don't worry, as much it's come out 40 years later <laughs> um so robertson told him that they would run all footage of him of mm-hmm. dylan by him in post and, and let him like approve what they were going to use which seemed mm-hmm. seemed air quotes to appease dylan at the time <laughs> we'll come back to that yeah there's going to be more drama um so the band's prepping the music. Scorsese's prepping the shoot. Bill Graham, who's the promoter for Winterland, mm-hmm. is prepping the event. At uh, at Chapman's request, the floor of the venue had to be reinforced. It was about five thousand dollars out of the production budget, um, so that the audience dancing wouldn't jostle the cameras mm-hmm. because it was an old venue. Uh, Graham wanted to make a whole affair of the event, planning to serve a full Thanksgiving dinner to attendees before the concert began. Uh, he was going to have a full service staff in, in tucks and tails, set wow. out uh, like a grand uh, tables, feed everyone, sweep away the tables, have ballroom dancing with a live uh, orchestra playing, and then uh, the band was going to start playing. I don't think he knows who his audience is. <laughs> this was also, I, I think Robertson was also egging him on a little bit because he was very committed to the yeah. idea of like the last, the last waltz, waltz and I'm going to yes. compose a waltz for it and all this stuff. Mm-hmm uh so for the look of the stage scorsese enlisted his uh production designer in new york new york boris levin who is Mm -hmm. a absolute legend in production design uh west side story giant Mm -hmm. sound of music anatomy of a murder which we covered giant and sound and anatomy of a murder and west side story we've covered so just sound of music we haven't covered there you go (laughs) we'll get there one day um Robertson had requested that the stage design stand out from most concerts. And when Levin heard of Graham's plans to host a grand banquet and have ballroom dancing, he reached out to the San Francisco opera and said, you know, what have you guys been doing lately? They said, Oh, we just did a production of La Traviata. And he said, can I just have your set? And they said, yeah. So that's what you see in the film. You got these these columns, this like red draping on the back chandeliers. Those were all from the San Francisco opera. Wow. All this is going on. Uh, Chapman is on the phone with Panavision constantly (laughs) trying to figure out if he's going to absolutely destroy these 35 millimeter cameras by trying to shoot for four hours, which is what rehearsals are coming out to. Uh, So at this point, a reel is like 11 minutes, mm -hmm. basically. Yeah. And that's a lot of changing reels out. But even, even with changing the reels out, it's like if we shoot if we change the reels out and then immediately start shooting again, are these things going to just Overheat, yeah. melt? Yeah. Um, so they're, they've determined they can't shoot the whole show, obviously. Um, so they're going to have to make cuts to the script mm-hmm. and pick certain songs to be in and, and certain songs to be out. Mm-hmm. And then just like cut the cameras off, let yeah. them rest and bring them back up. Mm. So 
speaking of the four hour runtime, uh, Levon Helm, who disliked the whole ordeal, but seemed to have kept his mouth shut from, for the most part during rehearsals, finally puts his foot down when talks of cutting one of the guests for time arose. Uh, go tell Neil Diamond none of us know who the fuck he is. <laughs> Helm is reported to have yelled. No uh, offense to Neil Diamond. No yeah. offense to Neil Diamond. <laughs> so this is Levon Helm's words. Yeah. Uh, so then, may, probably out of spite, uh, because Robertson kind of knew who Helm was really excited to have. Yeah. Um, Robertson said, well, then we're going to cut Muddy Waters. And you, Levon, you should be the one to go tell him that oh, wow. he needs to go home. So Helm countered said, and said, if you make me send Muddy Waters home, I'm going with him. And the two of us will do our own damn last waltz. <laughs> and so that, and that was it. That was the end of it. And yeah. both of them uh, stayed on. Both of them stayed on. Yeah. So rehearsals were as good as they were going to be. Pretty much everyone in the band says they're like super concerned because mm-hmm. they learned they were playing all of their songs as well as like an additional two hours of other people's songs that they didn't really know. That's a long concert. Uh, but the venue's been remodeled. The cameras are set. The caterers are booked. The show's ready to go. Uh, announcements had been made that this would be the last show by the band, including a note during their performance a month earlier on SNL. And with dinner promised and the prospect of seeing the band one last time, the show became an expensive ticket. Your average concert ticket at the time was about 5 to $7. Yeah. It was $25 to see the last waltz. Wow. That was Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. <laughs> Get Thanksgiving dinner That's, today for yeah. under 25 bucks. Yeah. Uh, regardless, the show, the show sold out. Uh, and this was without them. They did not. None of the publicity had any of the guests. And they didn't even say like the band oh, wow. with surprise guests. This was just the band. The band. Wow. It's their last live show. Sold out. Uh so to get to, you know, what we would call on set life in the show in, we in the talk about favorite scenes. We're, we're gonna talk about favorite scenes after after okay. after the shooting of it, I think. Okay. Um so just a couple of things about the shoot. Um the show went fairly well, okay. even according to <laughs> the band members who were not happy to be yeah. there. Uh, Thanksgiving dinner was served at seven, followed by ballroom dancing. And wow, then the they band, actually did do all that. Yeah, okay. The band took the stage at nine uh, and they played their full solo set. So this is how it, it actually ha- went down. They played oh, okay. they played their full solo set, took an intermission and then started doing the like guest show. That's smart. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's during intermission that things got a little crazy. Uh, Bob Dylan had locked himself in his dressing room saying that he had changed his mind and he wouldn't perform if the cameras were rolling. Oh my God. Uh, Levon Helm says Robertson went totally pale and he, everyone thought he was going to pass out. Uh, what they had not told Dylan is that Robertson and Scorsese had secured financing from Warner brothers because Dylan was going to be in it. Bob Dylan was no, going to be in man. it. Uh, they were going to lose, uh, this, uh, somewhere between like one to $3 million dollars that they probably already spent at that point yeah. if Bob Dylan wasn't on camera. Yeah. So Bill Graham, the promoter at Winterland steps in. He says, don't worry, everybody. I'm going to go talk to Bob. I know him. So he lets himself into Dylan's dressing room. They spoke for a while. There's about five minutes left before the band has to take the stage again. And Bill emerges with this promise. Uh, Dylan would allow uh, some of the songs to be taped. Mm-hmm. But even with this compromise, at some point during Dylan's set, someone from his team supposedly tried to storm the cameras and shut them off. Uh, multiple witnesses report Bill Graham pulling the man away and yelling at him, get out of here or I'll kill you. 
This is history. Don't mess with it. <laughs> so the performance resumed and the show continued uh, with multiple other artists who are in town kind of dropping in backstage and the audience begging, begging for more after the mm-hmm. conclusion of the show. A jam session broke out afterwards, even though they were all concerned about like four hours. They finished up the four hours and then they started jamming. Ringo Starr came out, which we see him briefly in the oh, yeah, yeah, in yeah. the film. Uh, Ronnie Wood was there. Stephen Stills came out and jammed. Mm-hmm. And then even after the jam session, the audience begged for more, which is when just the members of the band took the stage one last time to play their final encore, which is what Scorsese opens the film with. Which is a very interesting choice. I think it's a smart choice, actually. It's 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 another thing that makes the film unique is that it's like it's 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 Scorsese doing Citizen Kane. We're gonna start with the ending. And then we'll come back and explain everything else leading up to that, basically. Yeah, so with that, let's let's do some some favorite scenes. Some favorite scenes. Well, I I think for one, I just have so much to discuss about like how different everyone else is compared to Robbie Robertson. Because like Robbie Robertson, I wrote at one point like he looks like he's their manager and not someone who's in the <laughs> band. You know what I mean? He's got like, his like suit with his little, yeah. his little uh 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 what's he got? It's like this little scarf, scarf yeah. hanging down, yeah, a little silk scarf hanging. But there. it just feels like because it's that one scene where they're all actually to get because Levon Helm does not show up in an interview till halfway through the movie. He is, you can tell he's, and it just you feel kind of the tension when they're both together. But and almost because Robbie, Robbie's almost in every single interview. I think except like maybe two, um, two or three. But Robbie, you can tell is the one painting the picture of who the band is and what they stand for anytime there's group interviews he's it's, he's, he's just always interrupting and, and, and like yes. stealing the story like someone else's stealing story, story. Yeah. exactly and there's a scene where when they're all together and robbie is like standing in the back mm-hmm. but and then it, that kitchen yeah which i think is a set from new york new york actually oh, really? you can oh, well. see it's like back the windows oh, like backlit yeah so you but you can see him there he's standing there he's almost like he's holding court with all of them is what it feels like and you can tell, and just the way each, everyone speaks, is that everyone else speaks in terms of music and the love of music. It's like Levon talking about the history of like where the blues comes from mm-hmm. and how it goes in the country and how it goes into rock and roll. And then you have the teacher doing his thing. You have, I think, a, a, another prime example is when Danko, when Scorsese goes to the Shangri-La and they're recording and Scorsese's like, what, what have you been up to lately? Robbie Robertson would just go into a whole spiel of like what he was doing and everything. And Danko can't even explain. He goes, oh, I've just been, been making music. And then just doesn't say what he's making, just starts playing it. So it feels like these other guys outside of Robertson like can only speak in their passion for the music. And Robertson kind of feels like I'm telling you, it's it's kind of feels like a selfish thing is what he's doing. Um and I find that fascinating of how Scorsese says it because I know Robbie Robertson now has worked a lot with Scorsese yeah. after this. And that's kind of the fascinating part is that like with all that, I feel like Scorsese is like tells you early on with that opening that like he is unreliable <laughs> with what he is saying. And it's such such a Marty move to do that in a concert film. It's just, just them playing music. But to break down kind of scenes or performances, um, well, I, I do I do want to touch on that real quick because that yeah. that is that dynamic I think is what makes the band so interesting to me, which yeah. I, which I, I think some people might dislike about them. But mm-hmm. so much of classic rock 
in all aspects, all like subgenres of classic rock. I mean, all, so much of rock in general, the, the, the development of rock mm -hmm. is, is white boys playing African-American music yeah. and doing their, their take on African-American music. And, yeah. um, you know, so many of them are, are kind of so distanced from it. And I mean, you've got me, you've got Clapton who, who kind of, became very tight with bb king and 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 maybe got the closest of anybody but i think the the interesting thing about the band is like levon helm is the real deal yeah. like he lived it yes. and then you've got all these other guys who are just kind of playing especially robbie robertson yeah. it's just kind of like playing at it yeah and so it's just crazy. playing house is what yeah, it feels yeah, like yeah. yes it's this crazy dynamic of like like Levon Helm is just you can just see him anytime he's talking on the documentary is just so authentically yes, like exactly. southern rock yes. <laughs> and Robbie's like it's this music. is what I think music should yeah, be yeah. Like, it's it's got a lot of I, I think I, I'd imagine Cameron Crowe even though he the band was not one of the groups that he yeah. toured with as a teen I think still you know Allman Brothers very famously were the kind of inspiration for Stillwater, but there's a lot of mm -hmm. the band in the way that Stillwater kind of plays out. Yeah, I wrote, well, I kind of wrote down like Robbie feels like Russell Hammond, like Russ Hammond, because he, and this is kind of fascinating with what I could say a band documentary or concert film, because even with, with kind of talking kids would stop making sense. Like you can tell there's someone who's pushing their way through and becoming the voice of the group. And Robbie feels like, say, like Russ Hammond almost says, he's the one that's pushing through. And like, say, Russ Hammond and almost says when he's performing, he's not a singer. He doesn't really do anything. He's just, he's, he's playing guitar well. Um, but somehow his mystique is what makes him interesting. With Robbie, it, he can play guitar well, but it also feels like he's pushing himself forward to be the guy and like when you watch them performing you said he never sings a song Be very rarely does he sing even backup on a song um when all the other guys danko singing levon singing the, the the piano player singing, like everyone it feels like everyone's in kind of this band and robbie's there somehow yeah and everyone else can play as you know especially for this kind of like very because because when you know if you're if you're not super familiar with the band when we say southern rock you might think like leonard skinner but it's more like like bluegrass yes. rock and so like all the guys could play you know levon can step out from the drum kit and play mandolin mm -hmm. uh, uh garth can play accordion and then it's just kind of like uh robbie's just kind of always there with the guitar <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah exactly it feels like everyone's like rotating and, and, and like revolving in somewhere in some way um and robbie's just kind of there and not to say robbie is not good it's just you it feels like just again it feels like he's the manager who somehow wound up on stage <laughs> yeah yeah so that's yeah that's a, that's a great kind of that's that's the dynamic i think plays through so much in this movie and so yes. when when people do kind of come away and they're like oh i don't like the last waltz like it's just like blind praise of this band like i i, I get very confused yeah when, when people have that take it feel it felt that way at first the first time but this time it's like I said, it feels like this this like final farewell to all these people when they're coming in at kind of the top of their game. And it feels like the band is just, we're seeing it through the prism of the band, basically of this era coming to an end. Um, and I don't know if that was with Robbie conceiving this idea of this movie. Was it purely for this? Is, this is kind of an interesting question. Was this 
Robbie seeing it as the end of this era or is it Scorsese doing that or is just time is made it that way? Does that make sense? It's like, Uh, yeah, I I mean, I don't think, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this in the aftermath, but Robbie really thought this was the beginning of him. And he says, this is the beginning of the beginning of the end of the beginning or whatever it is. Yeah. 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 Robbie really thought like this, he was like, after this, we're going to get into the studio and we're going to make some really, yeah, we're going to make Sergeant Pepper. We're going to make, yeah, exactly. Um, but I think Scorsese knows the whole time that it's not because you were talking about with Danko that that scene where he's like, well, what are you going to do after this? And yeah. he just kind of like like freeze frames on him because yeah. he's not saying like, oh, we're going to get back in the studio with Robbie. And yeah, like, does not say. Yeah, that. yeah, he's just like, well, I'm making music. I'm just been trying. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So let's let's do some, some extra scenes. scenes. OK, Um. well. I'll bring her up because. I know you don't like the singer that she's singing with, but with Neil Young, but the way they reveal Joni Mitchell in that Neil Young song is just fantastic. Like it's it's probably the best like introductions of a per, of a like say a character in this instance, a character in this film. Yeah. The way it's like she's because what it is is Neil Young singing, and I can't remember what song it is. It's Heart Heartless, I believe, um, and. Neil Young singing, and then all of a sudden you kind of hear this angelic voice coming, and then all of a sudden you reveal Joni Mitchell backstage in like silhouette, helpless, um, and silhouette singing, and it's just just beautiful introduction of her. And I was like, oh, does she ever come? Because I, I forgot if she came back, and then she comes back and does a great song. But it was just like no one else kind of gets that. Um gets that intro like she does everyone else just kind of walks on stage or whatever but it's just this beautiful reveal yeah that, i mean that was silhouette. from a from a live perspective they knew that they wanted her to sing backup but they hadn't introduced her yet yeah, so yeah. they were like she's just gonna hang backstage which i mean it's got to be insane to be there and the audience would be like wait, wait a minute is that joni is Mitchell? that singing back? um i will pref- I, I will i will put an asterisk here um talking favorite scenes i I very famously don't care for Neil Young's music. Mm-hmm. Um, I love <laughs> Neil Young in this movie. <laughs> He's a great character. He's a great character. He is. He is. Uh, if if you were to, he has the most life in him. It feels like uh, uh, him and right Ronnie Hawkins just like come on. The most and, life or the most cocaine in him. Uh, yeah, it could be. Well, we know Ronnie doesn't probably have cocaine. Yeah, well, so, yeah, no, no, no. But 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 well, Neil Young, Neil Young does. does. Yes. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> if you were to make a last waltz movie like 1988 bill paxton playing would Neil be the Young. perfect <laughs> you're so right you're so right because he has that wild eyes to him he's having the fun that's the only time i think like you can actually get robbie to somewhat sing it feels mm-hmm. like because he's actually like singing oh yeah, all yeah. Together he, he gets over on um with danko and him they're yeah. all on the same mic together so it actually feels like he's getting robbie to to sing and be a part of it mm-hmm. is the thing um no yeah, i love i love that that song um and then again you have johnny mitchell in the background just beautifully introduced um i i love ronnie hawkins coming in because he just comes in like a tornado yeah right and, out and of the gate and it, it's very it, it feels so warm you know he it yeah. feels like he's proud of these guys yeah he's got that moment where it goes he's like fanning robbie's yeah. like as he's playing guitar he's, he's like he's at, he's, he's like at, living to the mall yeah, yeah. yeah hyping him up to the crowd uh, it's very different as far as the the two men who kind of made them. It's very different than Dylan than we get from Dylan. Because Dylan's like, sure. it's about me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Bob Dylan. 
Um, and then Ryan, and the thing is, Ryan just about he just walks off stage. Yep. Doesn't say bye, just like puts his mic and lets them play it out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I love that. I love that scene. What's one for you? Um, I've said we said I've said two. Yeah, I mean, you know, if we're if we're kind of taking it guess by guess. Well, and I do I do love, and this is, you know, I think this is as much a testament to Scorsese as it is anybody. The the two I was gonna say scenes yeah. that they do on a soundstage mm-hmm. later on. So it's the Staple Sisters and Emmy Lou Harris who both couldn't make the live show. Yeah. Uh both of those are so well done. They're so good. That was when I watched it and you go, Oh, this is Scorsese painting on his canvas. Mm-hmm. Like he is just it's the it's and, and also with Chapman too, it's like the push-ins of the camera, and again, talking about introductions of characters, the way he reveals the Staples sisters, the Staples family, and that the way he reveals Emmylou Harris, it feels very cinematic. Um, then the, I mean, all, all other stuff does too, but that's where it's like he feels like he's building out the shots the way Scorsese does and telling the story, and it works perfectly there. Yeah, yeah and I think both of those arrangements are great. So, yeah. so you know the weight which is probably their most famous song to kind of take it and lean into kind of the southern soul with of it a little bit more with the staples family and then evangeline was was written for uh this it was a new song that was written for the the concert and mm-hmm. emmy lou harris is just incredible incredible yeah voice is beautiful like it's it's fantastic and the way they have them set up where they're kind of like aside they're kind of off in the wings but yeah. they're also kind of center they, you know they've got a camera center mm-hmm. on them so they don't feel back up in any way um yeah that's great and 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 i love the evangeline because because levon comes out from behind the drum set and plays uh i love watching the, the levon mandolin, yeah love watching levon play mandolin i love yeah. watching levon play anything i'll yeah. never understand how you can drum and sing at the same time i've it's- thought the same <laughs> thing and the way he drums i've never realized this before he dr- so he, ha- he has one drumstick where he's drumming like the the regular way oh yeah he's got the other one like he holds like in the middle (laughs) but he drums with the bottom of it like the base of the drumstick and i was like like, on google s i was like do you do people actually do this where they're drumming with the opposite side of the drumstick and could someone actually pose the question like a drum form like hey i do this for more rock songs does anyone else do this like no one commented (laughs) and i was like and they're like i think someone said oh this guy and this guy but i was just like wait is he the only one's like drumming with the opposite side of a drumstick for like the kind of rhythm part of it to have a little more like heft it feels like so it's just an interesting just technique that he's doing there but yeah how he's able to to sing and sing some of their best songs as well he's got a great like that's the thing is that like i i don't want to jump too far ahead but like it it it's Robbie is forcing himself into the movie a lot, but Levon's just natural persona, authentic persona that you're talking about, like also just shines through on its own. Mm. Like, and you, and I don't know if that's Scorsese putting it in there or if that's just naturally because he feels like the leader of the band and is the leader of the band. So it's naturally just going to come through when Robbie just feels like, it feels like he's photobombing a lot like yeah. in the concert in well, some and, way and when when danko's singing it's kind of the same way too is like we'll be just be in on him which he's also a fantastic bass player yeah. um he's kind of mesmerizing to watch play bass and then every once in a while you'll have him singing and then robbie will just kind of like pop up uh <laughs> Hey guys, I'm still here. Uh, I do love to, to shout out Robbie. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm dissing Robbie a lot. I don't mean to. Great musical moment, just in general to watch. And and then the movie's kind of filled with all these little moments. But when Clapton's uh, strap breaks and Robbie just picks up his solo yeah. like seamlessly, yeah. is is really really cool yeah. to see. No, that's the thing. Robbie is talented. It's <laughs> just it's just like 
he wants to be on he camera. He wants so to be bad. on camera <laughs> is the thing. He just wants to, um, and you can feel it. And that's and and but again, that's what again that's what kind of makes the movie interesting mm-hmm. is that because you can feel if you're really watching and not just listening to the music, you're you're seeing kind of the conflict at hand. Yeah. With everything, like Garth really doesn't want to be on camera, but there's this fantastic yeah. wide shot of him like spread out over the keys of his organ yeah. with like the his hair, his little comb yeah. over, like his hair like flying up in the air, and yeah, just like hell yeah. The a lot the the anytime Scorsese goes behind them mm-hmm. is so good. I think it's when Joni Mitchell comes out that he's got a camera on a dolly. Yes, uh, he does it for Hawkins too. Yeah. He's got a camera on a dolly behind him that mm-hmm. kind of comes out on the stage with him. That's that's so good. Yeah, no, it's it's yeah. Let's see what else do I have here with with uh, yeah. I, I don't. I mean, Neil, Neil Diamond's fine. I get Levon. I mean, I love Muddy Waters in it. Um, um, the night they drove old Dixie down is is probably, probably out of their songs. It's, yeah, it's the it's best, the best song. I would agree with that. Out of their songs, um, just the 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 live performance of it and leave on drumming eyes closed <laughs> singing. singing and that is that the midpoint that's kind of the midpoint of the movie mm-hmm. i think because that's when it hits that song and i think it goes into the first interview with Levon, where you're like he looks like he just got off the 18 wheeler truck he's got that, that big trucker hat yeah, on he's and like robbie looks like yeah. he just like just came from like a mixer somewhere in la like it's it's <laughs> It could, and that's what's when watching that scene. It's like these are the two forces in this band that you can feel are just like two magnets bouncing off one another in a in a way. It's just you feel this like push on them, basically. Um, yeah, as far as far as everybody else, I mean, Doctor John fits in with them seamlessly. He I mean, does. He just sits he down at the piano and just goes. Yeah. And um, I mean, he's 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 a legend in his own right. And then. I love Van Morrison. I think he's hilarious. But oh, yeah. uh, his little like sequined like velvet suit that he comes out <laughs> in, then he's great. He's got so, he's such a great vocalist. Yeah. And I, I I think he ends up fitting in with them more than than you think he's going to. I agree with that. Uh, yeah. Um. And and you know Van Morrison is someone I've always. Uh, I, I think he's been done a disservice by Brown Eyed Girl being his most famous song. You know? <laughs> so much of his discography is so interesting well, like astral weeks is a really great yeah. album oh, yeah. like yeah um but yeah but brown eyed girl it just feels that feels like you're drunk at gulf shores on the spring <laughs> break yeah um uh <laughs> but yeah those are kind of mine um and then dylan comes out and then dylan i mean here's the thing bob dylan's bob dylan um but i i you said i think it's almost like if you if you if you reverse and you put Ronnie at the end, like the mm. energy that would bring yeah. for your finale. Yeah, that's true. When Dylan's just kind of like, worship me is what kind of feels like. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very glad they don't close on Dylan. They, they close yeah. on kind of a, everyone grouping around like they yes. used to do at the Grand Old Opry. Because um, Dil- it, it, while Dylan is Bob Dylan, it's like it kind of fizzles a little bit. Yeah, because he's he, you know, Hawkins comes out and he has this whole energy of like these guys used to be my backing band and now yeah, I'm a guest, now I'm a guest of theirs. You yeah. know, um, Dylan comes out and he's like, "You guys fall behind me again." Like, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, and it's you know, <laughs> multiple people who have seen Dylan live have told me to never see 
Bob Dylan live, and I, I kind of get it here. He just he, he doesn't look like he's having a good time. No, he doesn't look like he wants to be there. Yeah, this is paying. This is paying for the album. Is what it kind of feels like. Um, yeah. So yeah, those are kind of. I think we kind of covered a good bit of that. Um, I'll have my thoughts on the poem poems later okay all right i I just don't know why they're there yeah yeah (laughs) we we can talk about that when when we get to that but um all right so a little bit of aftermath um so over the next couple of days after they wrap the show scorsese squeezed in some work with the band here and there on the set of new york new york getting the interviews for the movie a few more performances with the staple family and emilu harris who couldn't make the live show like we said uh due to making another movie at the time post for the film was put on the back burner so Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So it takes two years. Yeah, it takes yeah. two years to come out. Um, also holding up post production was the fact that Dylan's manager snuck around Bill Graham at the end of the show and stole some of the film reels. No, man, Dylan just would not let it go. <laughs> According to Levon Helm, Robertson has never confirmed this, but I I tend to trust Levon. <laughs> uh, it was a ransom back to Robertson and Scorsese who paid an undisclosed amount of money to get the reels back from Dylan. Oh man. How did Scorsese go on to work with Bob Dylan after this? <laughs> well, he did, he, he like two, he did no direction home, I believe. And then yeah, rolling thunder review. It's just, I mean, I wonder if it was part of this. Okay. Bob, I'll edit rolling thunder review. <laughs> Won't come out for, and then Dylan, like for every but... 10 years, just like Marty, what is going on? <laughs> this is part of our deal. I gave you the band footage so you could do this. He's like, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm clean right now. I can't go as fast as I once could, Bob. <laughs> um, so the film was ultimately released in 1968, along with the three disc record of the concert, which I'm, which I'm holding here. Yeah, uh, it's right here. Out it's of, out of uh, in keeping with the spirit, even yeah. though you can't see. It was quickly hailed by music and film critics as the best rock film ever produced. Uh, you know, it was something it had that combo of Scorsese and this band that was very critically adored. Um, so it just kind of uh, immediately became this kind of touchstone. Uh, it's since been re-released in theaters four times with a new cut in restoration hitting theaters in 2021, followed by a 4K Criterion release in 2022, which I have not seen yet. That's but I've heard it's very good. Uh, I have a quote here that I want to read. Okay. Uh, so we already talked about how our boy Roger felt about it, but uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know if we talked about it on the podcast. We talked about it before. Yeah, Roger was very mixed. Yeah, Roger. On it. Roger's just kind of like, how could anyone consider this the best uh, concert film of all time? It's he's fine. like, he's like, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> he's he cast. He's, he's like, yeah. He's like. It feels like everyone's just going through the motions, is what he kind of argues. And at the end, it's like, it's like you're probably wondering, I have it three stars. Eh. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but I have, a, I have a paragraph here from another friend of the podcast who wrote a, yeah, wrote a very long uh, piece okay. in The New Yorker in the summer of 78, kind of about the state of cinema at the time. Okay. Uh, and uh, it, the biggest film that summer was uh, Far From Heaven, I think, is Charles Grodin, is that? Oh, heaven can wait. Heaven can wait. Heaven there can we wait. go. Yeah. yeah. So heaven can yeah. wait. So yeah, Warren Beatty. Warren yeah. Beatty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, she hated it. <laughs> basically, wrote this whole article about how people liking that movie was like the downfall of cinema. If that, if that. Oh, you know. I wish Pauline Kael was alive today. <laughs> um, but so, kind of, as she was writing this really long but very well written piece, she was kind of peppering in these little paragraphs about like other things, other things. to be seen in theaters that that, that same, summer. Yeah, so. Yeah. Um, 
One paragraph says, no American movie this year has been as full of the joy of making cinema as Martin Scorsese's The Last Waltz, his film of the band's Thanksgiving 1976 concert in San Francisco. He shot it while he was still involved in New York, New York, which was full of the agony of making cinema. In The Last Waltz, Scorsese seems in complete control of his talent and of the material, and you can feel everything going right, just as in New York, New York, you can feel everything going wrong. <laughs> It's an even-tempered, intensely satisfying movie. Visually, it's dark-toned and rich and classically simple. The sound, if one has the good luck to catch it in a theater equipped with a Dolby system, is so clear that the instruments have the distinctness that one hears on the most craftsman-like recordings, and the casual interviews have a musical, rhythmic ease. Why was it so hard to persuade people to see this movie? Were they leery of another rock concert film? Were they tired of hearing about Scorsese? All of that, maybe, and possibly something more. They swooned and giggled over A Star is Born, but The Last Waltz is a real movie, and it must have given off some vibration that made them nervous. They couldn't trust the man who made Mean Streets and Taxi, taxi Driver to give them a safe evening. So, Pauline Kale, like The Last Waltz. Like The Last Waltz, not a fan of Star is Born. No. The, the Barbara Streisand Christmas. Not a fan of New York, New York. Yeah, either. You're looking at an interesting period, because like Heaven Can Wait... Wallace and I like Kevin Can Wait. I don't didn't hate like he, but Wallace Wallace seventy eight film, it does feel like almost like a premise that would come in the eighties. Even though that's also a premise from it's it's a remake of the night a movie from the nineteen forties. Here comes Mr. Jordan. Um, but it's interesting looking at the way cinema was at the end of the seventies and the eighties. Just the way it was looking at how music was going to become at the end of the seventies and the eighties, where like this style of music goes out pretty quickly as does again you're recording this you're you're making this this film in 76 comes out in 78 but 76 you have star wars at that point in time and so cinema's moving towards the blockbusters of the 80s just like i think music mainstream music is moving towards pop yeah well and you also you know specifically within southern rock you've got kind of the notorious uh the eagles kind of yeah. selling out southern rock yeah and beca yeah <laughs> uh becoming kind of the the commercialized version of it um so to talk about the after we talked about the aftermath of the movie but we got to talk about the aftermath for the band yeah. because it was a little bit more dramatic yeah. so robertson had booked studio space uh not long after the show was done he was they wanted he wanted to record studio versions of evangeline which he had written for the show and the last waltz uh to he wanted studio versions of them to go on the album uh no one showed up wow no one came to the studio section uh to the studio session he didn't pull brian wilson just do it himself no uh so helm has been very vocal about his dislike uh for the concert in the movie complaining that robertson steamrolled the band into the whole ordeal and then cast himself as the lead in the film Helm has even gone far enough to allege that despite uh you know robertson very obviously singing into a microphone in the movie uh robertson was the weakest vocalist in the group and usually performed with his microphone unplugged i'm right i heard about that uh so in 1977 a year later the band's final album with their original lineup islands would be released uh made up of only outtakes from earlier recording sessions to fulfill their recording contract yeah Apart from an impromptu reunion at one of Rick Danko's solo shows in 78, the original lineup of the band would never play together again. Yeah. Uh, Robertson always claimed that the last waltz had been inspired by the Beatles, taking themselves off the road and entering a new creative era. So he thought he was ushering in their Sgt. Pepper era, like we said, but instead 
he and Scorsese had just filmed the group's Let It Be rooftop concert. Uh, Robertson just hadn't known it at the time. Yeah, but yeah. maybe Scorsese did. But 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 see that to go to the difference the Beatles and say that is that the Beatles didn't make it a big deal mm-hmm. that they weren't going to perform yeah, again. Yeah, that's they yeah. just stopped. Mm-hmm. Same thing if you go say Steve Martin with comedy. Steve Martin just say, "Hey guys, I'm not going to stamp ever again." We know he does kind of do it with Martin Short now, but he's like he just stops. Because that's what you kind of should do. You shouldn't make it. I don't know. Depends. It's a, the big debate. Like, do you tell people, make it a big deal, have your kind of farewell tour, or do you just like end on a high note and don't let them know? Like, end up on top and so you can come back if you want to again. Is the thing. Um, we've got this quote from Robertson in 1986 where he said, "I made my big statement. I did the movie. I made a three record album about it. And if this is only my statement, not theirs, I'll accept that." They're saying, well, that was really his trip, not our trip. Well, fine. I'll take the best music film that's ever been made and make it my statement. I don't have any problems with that. None at all. I mean, I'll give it to him. Like, I, I do. I truly believe in my heart of hearts that he thought he was doing what was right. For I agree. The band. I really I agree think he thought. I agree with you. I don't think it was this like, you know, I'm. I'm. I think he was so blind by his own kind of ambition I that I think he thought if I take everyone off the road, they're gonna get clean and they're gonna be yeah. grateful to me for saving their lives. Because I feel like if he, I think if he if it was different, I, I actually think he probably would not work with Martin Scorsese after this. If that makes sense, if because I, I think he naturally feels this is what I was trying to do, and also too, it was his idea. It sounds like he was more fond of it, and and if you know, any, if doing any documentaries, trying to interview people, if they don't want to be interviewed, you just don't interview them, and you interview people who want to be interviewed. And Robbie is the guy who wants to, he be, wants interviewed. to be interviewed. But I, I think, you know, I think uh, Garth only talks once, and he mm-hmm. comes away with like one of the best quotes in the mm-hmm. movie when he's talking about the the priests in New York. Yeah, uh, and Levon only talks like twice, and I think he comes away with some of the yeah, best. Yeah, he, he has he has the one with Robbie, and then he has that one by himself. When he's again, it, kind of the intro to Muddy Waters of talking about the blues and country and and rock and roll, and it's, it, and it's just so like quiet and again authentic. And that's why I says it compared to Robertson, all of them speak in like their passion for the music. Not what they think the music should be, or or whatever, and that's what I think Robertson is doing. But you can tell that just says to me is that Rob Robertson has bigger ambitions than they do. Yeah, yeah. The Robertson thing. was an impresario type. Like, yes, and none of the rest of them. Were. How can I package this deal? Yeah. They are not thinking about how can turn into three album in a concert film. Like they're not thinking the business side of it, and that's with the Beatles at the end. They were thinking about like, oh, it's a good package. We'll do the the get back album get back con- well, that television special and the film comes out or whatever you'll have the concert that's a big good package he's he is thinking about that they could care less about that is the thing so he is smartly again as a business person he's smartly trying to put himself as the face of it so he can sell it because that's what he wants to do and i applaud him for that as if he's going to do it he's going to put himself fully into it when they just it's just this is just Robbie's pet project like whatever but that's you know I think that's what makes it such an interesting kind of pop culture touchstone is yeah. it was not it's kind of remembered as their the last thing they ever did together but yeah. it was not meant to be that no. 
Uh, it was the last waltz. Like, oh, we're gonna, it's the last tour, and not the not literally the final farewell of the entire band. And and I know they they would they reunite years later, but Robbie was not a part of yes. it. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. In, in the eighties, uh, they got back together um, and put out a couple more albums, and they've toured several times under kind of Levon's leadership. Um, but everyone except for Robbie. Um, yeah. So, what works in the last waltz? I mean, Scorsese's direction works, and and I think he again he turns what could just be a concert film into something that is a statement of a time, a time capsule of a time, a goodbye to a time. And again, I think that to talk about the storytelling of say Robbie as the face of it, it's like he knew. He knew Robbie was going to be the face of just because of all the interviews. But the way he, again, sets up that opening at the very beginning is that he starts with Robbie messing up and then Robbie fixing it, but then telling Marty, no, let's do it this way. And that just has this whole blanket over the entire film is that anytime he speaks, we don't know if it's truthful or if it's a show. Um, And that's an interesting conflict to add in a movie about just them playing music is the thing. Um, so I think that works. I think that the guest spots work. I think talking about the production design of it, I think it's a very cool production design of how they how they do the concert. Um, especially for this era. Like it's not as high octane as say stop making sense, where it's like every different performance is like a different short film, it feels like. Um but this feel it captures the idea of what the last waltz would be, I guess. If it's if it's a ballroom type thing, it, it definitely feels like this final moment for this era. And I think that comes with Robbie. I'm sorry. It comes up with Marty, Martin Scorsese. Um, and the band just really kind of performs well. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the way he cuts it together to, you know, kind of knowing the way that the show went, yeah. I think the way he cuts it together tells the story really well. And, um, and I think having Scorsese behind it makes it, I think, you know, I'm, I'm kind of biased, but I, I think it's, I've seen having seen a lot of other concert films. I think there is sometimes when I like really like a concert film, but I'm like, I don't know if you don't love this band. I don't know if this yeah. is going to be of any interest to you, but yeah. I think Scorsese makes a good film that is entertaining regardless of how you feel about the band. Yeah, um, and, and having all the guest stars there helps, you know, yeah. it's, it, you're, you're going to know somebody in yeah. that lineup. Uh, Neil Diamond. Yeah. <laughs> Joni Mitchell. I mean, Joni Mitchell. Neil, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so, and and it, and it also keeps the pace up is is you know it's not these guys sitting there and playing their songs for yeah. two hours you get all these characters in you know and, and they and they really are kind of all characters which is what i think makes this one in particular so interesting and it, mm-hmm. it's this, this big mess of egos all together um all right so what didn't work I don't get the poems. I think the poems feel like pretentious to yeah. throw in there. So they did the poems. That was part of the kind of like really refined beginning part. So the poems yeah. were after the ballroom dancing, but before the concert started. Okay. Um, but I do think it's weird for Scorsese to, because he doesn't really, he includes like a, like a couple, like a shot of the ballroom dancing or something yeah, yeah, in yeah. the beginning. So I don't, yeah, I don't think he needs the poems. That's an interesting intro of like to go with the name. It doesn't make me think that's what they did before the show is the thing. I feel like this just almost like is it? It's his opening of color of money where it's like this is a piece to explain. Where like it's to get you in and, in the mood or whatever. But yeah, I don't. 
It just didn't make sense. Is, is there two of them? There's, two, there's yeah. the Chaucer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the guy who does like the Lord's Prayer, but calls yes. it like thy wig be done instead of thy will be done. Yes. Uh, it just feel it just feels like an odd inclusion um there. Uh I think I think Dylan's one of the weaker people in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> um he just feels it it just falls flat. He, he just kind of falls flat in comparison to and, everyone else. You know, and and we've talked a lot about whether or not this this movie kind of engages in like hero worship, which I don't think Scorsese does, but everyone there kind of does. Like everyone everyone's happy to be there. Everyone yeah. recognizes what a momentous occasion it is. And and Dylan just doesn't doesn't it's like dylan we are the world yeah yeah and <laughs> yeah i mean you, you know now that he's he's mad that he's even being filmed um yeah. as it as it's all going on but uh yeah no i yeah i do think that i'm, I'm really glad they kind of save it with the the kind of round on uh, um, the chant with all yeah. them coming out ronnie wooden star um and again right there with bringing them in it feels kind of like this uh that's even your more connection to that rolling stones and and then the Beatles with the Ringo star. It's like, it's, it's adding kind of all this on top of it. Yeah. Um, and then you got your comic relief cause Neil Young's dancing around. In the oh yeah. Like an idiot. <laughs> is, Neil, is Neil Young going to win the movie for you Tom? No. <laughs> if Bill Paxton was playing yeah, Neil Young. Yeah, he, he, that is a perfect casting for late eighties. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I think, I think Dylan is just the week. I think that like the, the two, the two uh, poems, um, that's really it that I don't think fully, yeah works did you have anything else i mean you know in my in whatever my like ideal cut of this movie would be we'd have more levon talking and less robbie talking That's but fair, yeah. but i do think you know for what scorsese does and what we come away with i think it's yeah. kind of important to have robbie's like i agree uh kind of used car salesman act going on sometimes yeah. and then like i'll honest because it doesn't go with what worked what didn't work but the ending because he ha- he has his ending line where robbie gets the final say of like why we're quitting it. That's the lines of like Buddy Holly, Otis Redding, Jimi Hendrix. They've all like gone or whatever. It's, it's, I think again, like I said, I think he is stating one thing, but by Scorsese, including it in this kind of like ending, it feels like it's not a statement on the band. It's a statement on the era is what it mostly feels more like. Absolutely. Well, and I mean, I mean, gotta hand it to him like 20 years touring was unheard of at the time like he they had no idea that's a lot they had no idea mick jagger was, was still going to be playing shows <laughs> in, <laughs> in 2023 uh, yeah, you know, yeah. that elton john would be doing his farewell concert so, in that lasted for three damn years yeah, 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 yeah. um but at the time like that was completely unheard of yeah uh so you got you gotta hand well, yeah, it because that. that point music music wasn't into touring until really the late fit the base of the 50s into the 60s so like yeah like they you're looking at people that they started in the late 50s as you said like that's a long time at that period and you're seeing everyone dying or what or we see you think everyone is dying around you these kind of top stars so you 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 get to worry about it and like that's the have the bills they were just burnt out is the thing and and they they quit but yeah, I think, you know, if you're saying if you could change anything, I think if you're putting together this like ideal band documentary, which there was one that was a little bit more leave on focus that came out like two years ago or so, uh-huh. something like like Once We're yes. Brothers or something yes. like that. Yes, that that was why we had this conversation. I had a conversation with the person I was talking about. So I think they were either shooting part of it at 
the new art, I believe. And I don't know if Robbie was the one they're interviewing or something. But she was like, she was just like pissed that he was there yeah, or something they, like they, that. They made a documentary kind of about the rift. Um, yes. But for what this is, I think Scorsese letting Robbie do his thing kind of tells the story. It does. Of of the last waltz, which I was agree. his which was his baby. Uh, so trivia. Okay. Here's the menu for Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, Six thousand pounds of turkey. Two hundred whole turkeys roasted, uh, three hundred pounds of Nova Scotia salmon, a <laughs> thousand pounds of potatoes, wow, ninety gallons of gravy, five hundred pounds of cranberry sauce, four hundred gallons of apple cider, and four hundred pounds of pumpkin pie served. God, who was taking the leftovers home after that? I don't know, man. Like, that's they, a they, lot. They, they, they were they, everyone was there for all. five hours. You know, they, they probably had to feed them again. Yeah. yeah. The title for The Last Waltz was the idea of the band's tour manager at the time, Rocky Brenner, son of Yule Brenner. Wow. Okay. It's unclear. Nepotism right there. (laughs) Nepo baby. Uh, It's unclear if this was part of the fallout of the Muddy Waters versus Neil Diamond argument, but on Scorsese's script for the night, Muddy Waters' whole set was marked as a period to cool off the cameras. None of that was supposed to be filmed. Uh, Kovacs, who had gotten frustrated with Scorsese giving out direction over the walkies during the concert, had removed his earpiece and forgot to stop rolling when Waters came out to perform. Uh, supposedly, Scorsese was like yelling at him over the radio, but uh, but he just couldn't hear it. So someone in post made the call to put the footage in, but that's why Waters' performance of I'm a Man uh, well, is the only thing covered in a Warner in the whole movie. Oh, wow. I didn't notice that. Yeah. That's surprising that Scorsese would do that because Scorsese loves... So it feels like Muddy probably Waters. a Robertson call who was the producer. So. Yeah, because like, because like, but and but even Robertson uses Muddy Waters song because he with stuff with Scorsese. They used it all the time in his movies. Like was it Manish Boy is used at least in the trailer of The Irishman. I can't remember mm-hmm. who's actually in the movie. They use his stuff a lot, and and I think that's surprising that he would want to cut that one of them would want to cut Muddy Waters out of there. Um. But speaking of Kovacs, the camera department was much more stacked than just Kovacs and Campbell. Um, the camera operators are all credited on the film as uh, additional directors of photography, mm-hmm. but included in that uh, are Vilmos Zygmunt, who uh, shot Close Encounters, The Long Goodbye, Deer Hunter, Hero uh, yeah. uh, Narita, who shot uh, The Rocketeer and Hocus Pocus. Hey, uh, David Myers, who was the DP for THX 1138 and, oh, wow. and was a, one of the DPs on the Woodstock documentary. Uh, Bobby Byrne, who shot 16 Candles and Bull Durham. Wow. And then their first camera assistant was John Toll. Wow. Yeah. Who uh, did who shot Braveheart, Thin Red Line, Legends of the Fall. A Last lot of Samurai. Films, by the way. I think he might have done Almost Famous. Yeah, he did. He did shoot <laughs> Almost Famous. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, I love those concert films of that era where you just hear like it's like I think Lucas was on was he on Give Me Shelter? Was he the Altamont one? Or was he or was he Woodstock? Well, I think I know Scorsese did Woodstock. I think Lucas either uh Woodstock or Altamont. I said Scorsese did Elvis on tour where he edited like the which it's kind of funny now because the whole montage, like split scripts they do in Elvis the movie of late, that was all Scorsese and Elvis on tour is the thing. So they've that somehow is carried over. But yeah, you have these like really talented people just shooting concert films. Even like Paul Thomas Anderson shooting like Sandler's concert stuff on Netflix. Like, just like, hey, let's go do this for fun. Mm-hmm. Another notable crew member who is almost absent from the credits is uh, Scorsese's lifelong editor, Thelma Soonmaker. Mm-hmm. 
uh, Schoonmaker, who had edited Scorsese's first feature, was nominated for an Oscar in 1970 for editing the Woodstock documentary. She she was editor on that. Uh, when she applied to join the editor's union, however, she was told she needed to work her way up from apprentice editor, despite already being an Oscar-nominated lead editor on a film. No big deal. So she refused, which yeah. I think she's entirely within her rights. Yeah. Uh, but at that point, she entered into an eight-year standoff with the union in which she was not allowed to cut union films. That makes sense of why she didn't cut several of his films in the 70s. Though. Yeah, she didn't cut Mean Streets, or at least she's not Didn't do Taxi Driver, yeah. didn't do uh, New Ra- York, New Raging York. Bull would be the first official film that she came back to cut with him. Yeah. So she actually started working on The Last Waltz. Of course, I thought they'd be able to get around it because it was this little concert film. Maybe yeah. the union wouldn't notice, but they did. And uh, they, for- they forced her off of the film. It's unclear how much of this she did cut but mm-hmm. scorsese shouts her out in the special thanks in the credits and um he was able kind of he had enough clout to step in and resolve the conflict in time for her to cut raging bull in 1980 and just made the union yeah. he just made him take her it's like listen yeah. she's not gonna work her way up she's yeah and i think and i think she's edited every one of his films since then if i'm not mistaken yep uh wow <laughs> just thought this was a fun little trivia fact. The Last Waltz was one of the first eight films ever released on Blu-ray. Really? The The original release of Blu-ray was uh, 51st Dates. Okay. The Fifth Element. Okay. Hitch. Okay. House of Flying Daggers. Okay. A Knight's Tale. Okay. The Last Waltz. The Last Waltz. Resident Evil Apocalypse. So the third or fourth one, maybe? I don't know. And Triple X. It was the original slate for who Blu-ray. who had that conversation of like okay guys i mean granted it covers a lot of demographics all those do cover a lot of demographics that's that's a lot of like that i think last waltz is probably the best one out of oh, all right, those. for sure <laughs> uh i found the article i found the original article announcing blu-ray and and these eight movies and the headline was the 45 dollar home video oh gosh you think about it, like, like when I, I remember when we, we find like the VHS tapes uh, at Cinephile, and you see the, the price had like sixty bucks, and I'm like, you could fifty cents. <laughs> this is the worst yeah. inva- investment yeah. ever for someone. Yeah, you know, records are the same way, but yeah. um, uh, the most expensive part of post production, other than however much money was paid to Bob Dylan's manager, uh, was an unexpected VFX shot that was required. It wasn't until they started watching the footage back that Robertson and Scorsese noticed that Neil Young had a visible, uh, for lack of a better uh, term, uh, coke booger in his nose. Uh-huh. Uh, while Scorsese thought this was authentic rock and roll, <laughs> uh, it was kind of the antithesis of everything Robbie Robertson wanted to do yeah. with this movie. <laughs> So he insisted that they get rid of it. Uh-huh. Uh, this was long before you could just kind of paint something out in a film. So uh, they ha- had to literally do you know, that. Frame by frame? Yes. So they had wow. to bring in an animation team to frame by frame rotoscope a ma- an animated mask over the cocaine booker. I mean, this is like 77, 78 when you're doing that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, due to the cost and amount of time spent painting the booger out, Robertson calls it the most expensive cocaine ever purchased. This is Yeah, this is the original Henry Campbell's mustache. <laughs> Um, like I said, I haven't seen the new Criterion release, but supposedly uh-huh. the Coke booger has been restored in the, uh, so that's reason to buy, you know, I, I, I bought the, uh, I bought the, the fast, times at, Ridgemont fast High. times at Ridgemont High to see the, the penis shot, but, um, you got to buy the 4k last walls to see the cocaine booger. Co- it's cocaine cut. Uh, 
Uh, Scorsese and Robertson were obviously so focused on the booger, however, that neither of them realized that Neil Young is wearing a T-shirt that appears to be depicting uh, two figures performing oral sex on each other through the whole concert. Man, Neil Young just not caring, <laughs> not caring whatsoever. So, well, that brings us uh, that brings us to oh, awards. <laughs> so we're changing them up a little bit, okay. uh, but we are still keeping our Beatrice Strait Award. So for this, we're okay. doing our guest performer who steals the show here. Okay, and that's Beatrice Strait. Is that what it's going to be? Um, I think for me, it's here are my top three. Okay, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, Ronnie Hawkins. Okay, those yeah. are my those are my three. How do you? How? What are you? Who are you? Who are you thinking? I'd agree. I'd, I'd throw out Amy Lou Harris just because I think she that's such great. an interesting. Yeah. But but Joni, yeah. the way Joni Mitchell, the way she appears, it's just it's, in, it's in so, Neil Young's thing, and then when when she comes out and everything just kind of slows, you know, so yes. much of the rest of the show, and and we talk about how Bob Dylan doesn't kind of fit in, but that's it's different when when Joni Mitchell comes out and everything gets kind of quiet and 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 she she fits but but she kind of demands that everything slow down for a yes, minute um, yes it's not for lack of caring yeah is the thing it's her natural demeanor is i'm gonna be quiet and you have to really pay attention to what mm-hmm. i'm singing or whatever um and it calms like i said it calms the room in a, in a good way dylan just kind of feels like awkward is the thing uh but yeah neil young is is a force in this yes. for sure uh, but I, I'll, I'll, I'll back you on Joni Mitchell, especially because that think, intro, yeah, the, the intro that Scorsese gives her. Because everyone else kind of has just like one song, but she has two. And I think that intro, no, besides my Emily Harris and then the Staples sing, sing, or singers, um, normally has an intro of that magnitude. And that one being the one that's on the concert, like act the actual concert. And she kind of gets two good entrances is the thing. Mm-hmm. It's like when she's walking on stage, you said, and then also that one. And it's like, it's just this nice close up of like in silhouette. It's just, it's gorgeous. So yeah, I would, I think she kind of takes it as the best guest performer. All right. And then I don't, I'm not sure what you guys called it last week, but I'm calling it the Adam Schlesinger award for best song of the film. I, I, we, we didn't even actually do it. I realized I, I think, well, as we were recording, David just asked, what was your favorite one? So I just, we just kind of talked about it there. So so we're taking it from Paul Williams to Adam Schlesinger. There we go. Yeah, that's yeah. fine. Okay, Adam Schlesinger. I think we've given Adam Schlesinger multiple awards for best song. So I that's think he, true. He's that's fair. I, that's that's a good that's a good switch. But we do love Paul Williams. Um, All right, I'll give you. I'll give you. We'll do two. We'll do the, the band's best performance and then the best kind of like guest mashup. Yeah. Um, I do love the weight, but I think if you're talking, talking about concert, concert, it's probably the night they drove old Dixie down. Mm-hmm. Um, Bring out the brass line behind yes. them, and it's a good midpoint of of the of the of the store of the of the film. I think it's Levon at, uh, at his best is the thing. Um, guest performance wise, I'm, I think it's helpless. Mm. with with neil young because it's the neil young and johnny mitchell combo mm-hmm. who would you who would you say i mean it might these? be cheating but but the finale that i shall be released is, okay is, is, yes i shall be released is a great song and, and, and everybody's just having a blast except for bob dylan <laughs> uh, 
but what about the band uh, the band ba- i think it's the night that drove old dixie down too yeah. I, my my f- personal favorite song by the band is ophelia um which which they do really well here but um but that one levon's just going for it and they yeah they've got the yeah the the brass backing band really comes out yeah. in that one and yeah it's awesome but to shout night that drove old dixie down a good cover version uh is from richie havens he did like a a live acoustic like like in the cellar i can't remember where it was at uh it, it's one he does here comes the sun which is kind of the big one from that record but he does one at night all drip the night they drill dixie down and i just love it because it feels like there's always there's been controversy around this song the yes. past few years i will say and some can take it as an anti-war film or anti-war song some will take it as a celebration song in some way um what i like about richie havens's version is that there's a sense of anger in that song yeah. that makes it kind of this anti yeah I, song. I mean I, I i've always read it as as such as you know war war devastates everyone yes. um but you know I'm, I'm sure other people have misread it in the in the wrong way for well, sure I think, well the switch that havens makes i think at the end of this one is like it's the la la la, la or whatever like the kind of like almost like singing and joyous havens does it to no 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 that's mm. what he switches it to mm-hmm. and so that's what makes it kind of this more like anti-war angry at what's happening and so like kind of like angry at the south or confederacy so it's a very interesting switch that he does and so i just want to shout that song out because i think it's a great version of the song show you how you can take a song and not change much but kind of give a different perspective to it is the thing all right so Gene Hackman, MVP award for The Last Waltz. Okay. I'm sure Robbie Robertson wants it. I think it's Scorsese. Yeah. I think if if you... Yeah. I think the fact that Scorsese shows you how badly Robbie Robertson wants it. Yes. Is, and, yes. And, and, and that I think the, the, the genius of the way that Scorsese does this film is that he and Robertson have continued to work together after this movie. Um <laughs> He doesn't. He doesn't make him come out looking like a complete buffoon. No, but no, no, but it's no, no. there. It's, it's there. It's yes. there. And someone with as, as much of an ego as Robertson could probably watch this and be. And we have that quote from him. Yeah. Watch him be like, yeah, this is great. I love yeah. this. Uh, but the seeds. Scorsese sows the seeds, and then he goes on to work with Robertson and with Bob Dylan. So yeah. you know he doesn't make. He enemies. apparently is just good at like. Oh yeah, I made you look good, right? <laughs> no, but he what he does again that opening. That opening is kind of the key where you could, there's a few things here. It's saying a there's an unreliable narrator at play with Robertson, and b I think it's Scorsese saying no matter what he's telling you, just so you know, I'm the one telling this story, and I'm telling it my way because that's what he kind of he's like he he shows him mess up to show that Scorsese is in control of how this is going to come out. Yeah. Is what it feels like. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the, the, the freeze frame on Danko in that, yeah. uh, in the, at is, yeah. is really the, the only time Scorsese like really shows his hand. Like he's yes. like, ah, oh, look at this little filmmaking trick I'm doing. But, um, it's so telling, I think, yeah. uh, you know, he, I think even if Robertson couldn't see that the band was falling apart right in front of him, like Scorsese could. Yeah um and yeah it's 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 great and and that's that is i think the the genius of scorsese and that you could watch this film and and plenty of critics have and robbie robertson has and been like all this movie is is scorsese building these guys up and i i i don't think he is and i don't think he ever thought that he was yeah 
I agree. All right. Martin Scorsese okay. in the midst of making another movie. <laughs> and this is this is his more beloved, I believe. Uh, and I have not seen New York, New York yet. It's so what I've been trying to watch. Been wanting to watch for a while. For, for completionist sake. Yeah. But I think it's, I don't know if that's, I wanted to say on the big screen because I tried to show it a few times and I've always just missed out on it. And that's kind of what I've been like waiting for. But I think I just have to bite the bullet and, and rent the Blu-ray or whatever and, and watch it. Um, so for our final questions, yeah. uh, you know, we normally say, where does this fit in with, with other concert films? But we'll ask the question because it's been said by many other people. Is this the greatest concert film of all time? I would say no. Hmm. I, I, I Stop Making Sense is kind of my favorite that I've seen. Um, but I think this is how I put this. I think Stop Making Sense has made my favorite. We'll see. I might think it's a sign of the times, but I think Stop Making Sense is the one that is my favorite because it, it doesn't have any interviews. So it's a pure like concert, it feels like, but it's told in a very story structure way. This one, I would say, is probably the best one I've seen that has that documentary-like approach to it with the interviews. Yeah. Um, it's I think it's the one that has the perfect blend of interviews and uh, the concert itself. Yeah. So that's what I would say. Yeah, and I think it's 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 just such a unique pairing of all these of this this mm-hmm. band falling apart yeah but also putting together this insane concert of everyone who is influential mm-hmm. past present and future really of music at the time yeah and then you've got scorsese doing it um so but i think the argument you could make is that what could be the greatest is because it's one that as at first glance you watch it and it just feels like it's a concert film about these people getting together and singing and singing at a concert and that's about it. But I think it's one that takes a few view. This is a Scorsese film. It feels like in that way where it's like, it takes a few viewings to really realize what is going on and maybe having the context told to you yeah, I mean, through Wikipedia yeah. or whatever is it's, a better. It's the same thing as when Wolf of Wall Street came out and everyone hated it. Cause they were like, Scorsese's just building up this, this lifestyle and, yeah. and, and glorizing this guy. And then you watch it a couple of times and you're like, Oh, he's completely making fun of him. And, and, and he somehow got him to be in the movie. <laughs> Exactly. So that's 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 the, the the genius of of Scorsese, I guess. I agree. All right. Well, is that it? That's it. On, so that's it on the last waltz. It on the last waltz. Robbie Robertson, if you're listening, <laughs> we love the movie. We, I felt, we truly yeah, love the movie. I was like, I don't know if he's ever gonna listen, but I, but yeah, I I do think he's talented. That's the it's just this podcast may kind of like fight with my feelings about it because like. Again, at first glance with watching, or not first glance, but while watching it, you see him pushing through, like, I want to be the face of this. And, but like you said, does it come off as, like, it's not with malice is kind of the thing. Like, I think sometimes people in bands will do it with malice. I think about you telling me in the aftermath that he he set up time to, to record in the studio. So he, he had this plan that he wanted to implement, but he just did not realize the rest of the guys really didn't want that plan. And that's the thing. Yeah, there's something really tragic about it. That. Really, kind of is. Yeah. It really kind of is. But yeah, well, that's it on the last waltz. Um, we're doing. I know we're doing Patreon stuff this month for band stuff. I know David and I at some point we're gonna be talking about two Nirvana concert films with the uh, the uh, unplugged version, and then I think Paramount is the other one. Um, I'm still contemplating. I don't know if I told you. This. I'm contemplating. Do I do the comeback special? Elvis's comeback special. Mm. 
just by myself for, <laughs> like for an hour just to go on the Patreon. So we'll see. I don't know. I'm gonna, we'll talk about it later, but that's when I was like, I was like, I could do it if I really wanted to, cause I asked Dave, cause David's seen it and I was just like, I was like, would you listen to me talk about it for like 45 minutes? I probably could if I really cared. So we'll see. Um, we'll do something as a second one. Um, but yeah, if you haven't joined our Patreon, we have three tiers. We have a $1, $5, $10. $1, you get our newsletter and everything. And $5, you get at least one episode per month. And then $10, you get at least two episodes per month for our Patreon. So please, if you can, we've had a lot of people start following this past month or so. Thank you so much for the people who've been doing that. We really appreciate it. It kind of helps keep the show going um, and in the current format and everything. So thank you so much for that. But that's all we have for this episode. If you have any questions for us, feel free to contact us at Podcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions, comments, kind words. And if you're a new listener to the show or a fan of the show and for some reason you haven't subscribed to us yet, be sure to do so so you can stay up to date on all of our new episodes. You can subscribe to our show on our podcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already... You got to write us a review. It's the new year. Write us a review, t- Thomas. Life on the road gets tough. Sometimes we just need we need some feedback. I'm on the road right now recording this podcast. <laughs> it's like, t- yeah, tell us how you feel about us being in the same room together <laughs> uh, recording a show. But uh, yeah, five stars can. That kind of helps get uh, the podcast out there and get more kind of eyes on it. So the more traction you give us, it's just a beautiful thing. So please do that if you can. And finally, don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd and TikTok. Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank, I would say thank you for having me, but you're well, thank you for having you're me. You're in my house yeah, right thank now. Thank you yeah. for <laughs> having me, and thank you all for listening. We have to listen to more episodes soon. Bye.